name is Jake McLean, and you're listening to the Life, Leadership, and Laughs podcast. Hello there, friends. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I am joined by Dr. Timothy Alvarez. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So um, we got uh, connected, of course, by uh, Anthony, who was on the show. Um, I think he was my like third guest uh, on the show. So I was uh, I was happy to connect. Let's see. My computer is working very slowly. No worries. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so, uh, Tim, if you would, just share uh, a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks, Jake. Again, my name is Tim Alvarez. I was born in, in western Nebraska, a really small town uh, called Minotaur, where we had about 900 people. I'm a first-generation college student. My mom went to the seventh grade. My dad went to the sixth grade. So... Uh, honestly, they didn't understand secondary yet, let alone college. But but I'm blessed, and I'm really fortunate that I'm, I get to. This is a job I get to do, and I, I think it's an honor and a privilege to do that. Uh, I received my associate's degree uh, at Western Nebraska Community College back in '78, '79, and my GPA back then, Jake, was a 2.11. <laughs> And honestly, they were pretty generous. I think they just wanted to get me out of there. I was not a good student. Yeah, yeah, I I can certainly resonate with that. Yeah, so I had the opportunity while I was going to school, I was actually working at a grocery store 30 hours a week. And after I finished my associate's degree, I was going to go on and and try to be a teacher because I had two older brothers that were teachers. And I think, Jake, that's that's one thing that uh, I've come to find out uh, being an old guy now is that, you know, how we find our way and who we interact with matters a lot. And the research currently suggests that 60% of us find our jobs because of our network. So, you know, I look, I look back at myself when I was 19 or 20 years old and think, you know, I, I knew a few people, but I'm not sure I really knew anybody who could mentor or help me find a job or even think about what the future was like. So I was offered a job as a management trainee at the grocery store that I was working at. And, uh, of course, I was thinking the dollar signs. I thought, oh, gosh, I could make you know, $5,000 more a year doing this than I could if I went back to teach. So why would I want to go back and teach? Really stupid idea. Stupid reason to go back. So I, uh, I went as a management trainee. And so consequently, for about 12 years, I worked in, higher, or worked in uh, retail, managed a grocery store for a number of years, was married and had two kids. And then I got up one day and I told my wife, you know what? I really don't love what I do. I want to go back to school. Mm. So I was uh, 32 years old, had two kids. And, uh, you know, of course, my wife was looking at me saying, well, you idiot. Don't you know you have a family to, to take care of? Uh, so I, I did a lot of research. And what I, I found a school in Omaha, Nebraska, it's actually Bellevue, that would allow me to work full time and go to school full time. Again, being 32 years old and experiencing a lot of imposter syndrome. Uh, I went back, and in one year, excuse me, I got uh, 67 credits while working 52 hours a week. Wow. Now, you know, I 
I always tell people always kind of give me that, you know, how did you do it? And, and honestly, Jake, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm really not. But, but I think what that shows is the power of education and the power of if you find something that you have a passion for. Um, I, I always use this quote by uh, <clears throat> Paulo Kaleo from his book, The Alchemist. Um, and it goes something like this. When you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you achieve it. And I really like that quote because I think it just shows that part of our responsibility in higher ed is to help students find that one thing that they have a passion for, take barriers down for them. So I guess I'll try to fast forward, Jake. So basically between 89 to 99, while working full time, I finished a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD. But again, I'm not the smartest guy. It just shows if we can help people find where their purpose and their passion is, take down barriers and get out of the way, uh, there's really not much that people can accomplish. And I've also come to realize, Jake, that uh, you don't have to be an A student to be successful. I know a lot of people who are B and C students, but are really successful and have talents in other areas. Uh, so I've been fortunate. I've been the president of Otero uh, Junior College since uh, July, and I love what I do. I, I see students roaming the halls that look like me when I was back earning my 2.11 GPA. And I, I just think it's a blast. And my job is to try to help some of those students that look like me. So interestingly enough, when I was, uh, I got to go back to that school that I received the 2.11 GPA as the vice president for student affairs. And, and that was really fun to go back and visit with some of the faculty members that gave me the C's and the D's. Uh, but honestly, I earned them, Jake, and uh-huh. it gave me the opportunity to have conversations with them about um, what does it mean to mentor a student and what does it mean to be really um, actively engaged and be an inclusive advisor. Uh, so those are things that I saw with my office to try to help people understand goals and priorities and students find their purpose and passion. So uh, I guess that's kind of in a nutshell where, where we're at. Yeah, I mean, that is uh... – what a story. And and the experience to go back then to the school uh, where you got the uh, where you got the GPA. Oh, my gosh. Like how um, just how incredible of a of an experience. It, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed going back. Uh, and again, I, I thought it was my job. And, and like many of us, Jake, you know, when you when you have experiences uh, through life, you, you kind of want to go back and try to make it easier for people that kind of look like you or act like you. But I also think that part of my job was to make sure the students understand that uh, we're more defined by our failures than our successes. And when you have those failures, how do you navigate and uh, how do you get around them? And that, uh, in my mind, uh, I go back to uh, a book by uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning that a little pain and suffering can be a good thing. Uh, And I really believe that. And I think it's my job to remind students when they're having one of those critical moments in their life where they think they don't belong or they think they're not smart enough, that that's, you know, part of the human condition is having these experiences and then hopefully using it as inspiration or aspiration uh, to try to motivate you to do what you need to do and um, take you to that next step or do something you never ever thought you would do. I think I've shared on the show before kind of my uh, my experiences with 
I remember I, I started at a, at a community college myself. And when I was there, I don't think I, I, I framed it in my, actually my episode for, that I put out yesterday, um, that it was, um, it just wasn't a, a positive experience for me. I know it, like it certainly students have positive experiences there, but I, I don't know what, I, I think it was my mindset a lot of the time. And so I went from being a pretty, uh, decent student in high school, uh, to, a really just shoddy GPA, uh, and it took me a long time to kind of get my my own academic stuff together. Um, and I think that exactly to your point earlier about once you find kind of that passion, the purpose uh, for what you're doing, uh, and getting out of people's way to to help them just kind of get on the road. I think that that's those are some of the blessings that I've received pretty early on in my education that have kind of propelled me to, to do this and to, and to do what I want to do. Yeah. So, and then, and the things that you mentioned, Jake really resonate with me too, because um, I think for many of us, particularly from a, a vulnerable population and, and I look at myself and <clears throat> if I went to school now, you'd put all the check boxes in, in those boxes that say this kid's not likely to make it first gen, low income, uh, student of color, wasn't very good in student in high school. So you look at all these things and you would put people in boxes and say, oh, this kid's not likely to make it. So I also come to realize that, that life is really, really fragile. And for some of us, uh, we're fortunate that you you run into somebody or somebody, and I call it the invite, Jake, that sometime in your life, and my guess is you you could look back at your, your experience and your journey, and somebody at some point invited you to do something. Somebody might have said, you know, Jake, You'd be really good at this. Or have you ever thought about being in higher ed? And uh, the power of that validation for many of us can be the thing that points us in a different direction. Uh, and then I think it's always my responsibility to, to, to remind campuses, remind staff that we have students on our campuses that have never been invited, never, ever been validated and invited to do anything. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I had to mute my microphone because I was over here like just snapping away at everything that you just said. Uh, because absolutely, I think that um, I don't know that I was very aware of that because like I was one of those uh, students in my undergrad experience that got you know just fell in love with campus, got over involved everywhere, and um, you know like the the staff mindset about those students is that they're the all-stars but then you know something happens and then they can spiral really quick and i think that that happened with me a little bit in my own experience but now uh on the other side as a staff member i find myself being more intentional about looking for those students who who don't have that shot and who um yeah haven't been invited and i man i love that you said that yeah, and the other yeah. part, Jake, too, is I, you know, uh, I'll be mentioning a number of books because I, I love to read. So uh, in in uh, David and Goliath by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, my basic takeaway there is that we never ever want students to feel like they're the only one. And but we see it happen all the time again, particularly if you're from a, a vulnerable population. And then I also go back to some of Bren's Brown research on shame. I don't know if you're familiar with Bren Brown. 
Mm-hmm. But but her concept on shame, I see it happen all the time, particularly with vulnerable populations. And when you experience shame, the first thing you want to feel, first thing you want to do is be invisible. You don't want anybody to acknowledge or recognize you because they're recognizing you for your deficiencies that mm. you don't have, right? Yeah. And and that happened. I you know I look back and thought, gosh, I wish somebody would have had a conversation with me. And that's one thing I try to do now when I visit with students that experience things. The first thing I tell them is, it's okay to feel that way. It is really okay to feel that way. And then to start processing and validating their experience because I think too often in higher ed we tell students to to get over it or you're not a you're not a victim of your circumstance. But in my mind, that's always talked with the perspective of uh, of privilege. And, and yeah. their yeah. experience and how they feel is their reality. Yeah, I, I've been meeting with students um, the last few weeks, uh, and each of them at some point has dismissed their emotion um, and how they're feeling and how that's influencing what they're what they're thinking about. And I think that there are like those, like it's really heavy stuff that they're going through uh, that they've almost now normalized, um, and yep. it's. Uh, I don't know how. I don't know how to break the cycle of that. Well, I, and I, I certainly can't say that I'm I'm an expert right. in it, but but I've spent a lot of years, and I incorporate a number of different theories. And again, for me, the first one is when you believe in somebody, this this concept of validation, uh, particularly for students that come in and maybe have never had anybody ever believe in them. Uh, I'll tell you a story of Jamie. She was a non-traditional student when I was at North Dakota State University. Um, she came back to our campus, and it's a traditional campus, you know, which was really designed for 18, 19, 20-year-olds. She was a non-traditional. And so I'd had a conversation with her before she started classes, kind of some of the things that we just talked about. I said, here's some things you're going to experience, and it's okay to feel that way. You're going to experience imposter syndrome. You're going to look around the classroom, and you're going to say, I'm the only one here because everybody else is 18 or 19. And I said, it's okay. You know, when you feel that way, it's just acknowledge it and say, okay, that's how I feel and realize that it's okay. And so she came to see me a number of times and we had really great conversations. And so um, before I left that campus, she had asked me whether she could come see me. I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk to me, Jamie. And so she's, I don't know, she's 27, 28, 30 years old. And she told me, you were the first person to ever believe in me. And I'm sitting there, how does, how does a person get to be 27, 28, 29 years old and never have a sense or the feeling that somebody believed in them? And to me, that's really, really sad. But it also demonstrates that you know it can, it can only take one person, one person to believe in you. And you'll do things you never, ever thought you would do and how powerful that can be. Yeah, I um, we just had a, a gathering of students, faculty, staff to talk about uh, campus climate issues and things like that. And there was a student uh, who, uh, while it wasn't their intention to imply that nobody's going to care about you after you leave uh, the world, that's exactly what people heard. Um, and there's a lot of people who believe that, right? Like the, if you're going through something, um, you know, the world's going to expect you to move on, 
Like it's not going to stop and allow you to process things or validate your emotion about things. Um, and I think it's prompted a lot of discussion in my leadership programs about um, what the world would look like if we just cared about one another and showed that uh, showed some love. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So you're probably familiar with the concept of uh, Ubuntu. Have you heard that? Yep, I have. Yeah. So that was one thing uh, during one of my my first campus address, IAS campus, uh, talking about this concept of Ubuntu. And what would it look like if we didn't leave anybody behind? Um, but it seems like as a as a society, particularly in the in the United States, everything is about a competition. Everything's about being the best. And when you do the best and want to be the best, it means that you're probably stepping on somebody to get there. It means that you're, you may be doing things that are contrary to your beliefs because you think I got to win. Uh, so my conversation with campus is what would it look like if we didn't leave anybody behind? Mm. What if we grabbed people by the hand and, and try to bring everybody up, uh, so that they can have the kind of experience that we all want? Now, certainly is that going to happen? I don't know, but I, but I think it, begs the conversation about as a as a society and as a system what do we value and how do we how do we help people be the best versions of themselves yeah absolutely um you know i uh there was another group of of students who um i've brought up these kind of same kind of conversations right about uh what would that look like for us and somebody challenged me to say that it would look like we were trying to be uh, some kind of utopian society and we're shooting for some sort of unattainable future. And uh, it drove me wild that uh, that's kind of where our mindset is uh, about some of these things. Like how I don't understand why it looks so impossible to uh, care about other people, to, to bring them along with us. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I could talk about that exact thing for a whole podcast episode. Well, you and me both too, Jake. And I, I don't know if people, I, and I think it's my job to probably remind them how interconnected we all are and that um, the success of others can be our success too. And it isn't, isn't about winning and losing. Uh, but, and I'm sure you've seen all the statistics about where we're at as a country and how many people we're leaving behind and how many people don't have access or can't even pursue the American dream that we are privileged to try to have right now. Uh, it doesn't serve us as a country or as a society when we are leaving people behind. Absolutely. And I think that until we can have enough people challenging the individualistic society, like when we can stop rewarding the uh, behaviors that are consistent with that kind of sense of individualism, um, and only like one person's going to win something and we can start rewarding, you know, teamwork and great collaborations and things like that. I think that that's when we can start to see a shift, but I don't know where that's happening at right now. Well, I don't either. And I'm kind of a forever the optimist. And, uh, I think it starts in institutions of higher ed. I mean, we have, we, we yeah, absolutely. We, we are a laboratory and we should be experimenting a little bit in terms of how we, get there and have those kind of conversations. But... Okay, Jake, what, what yeah. else? What else can 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, sorry, I'm like lost in lost in thought about cool. all of this now. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, since since you brought up uh, your liking to read, you mentioned a couple of books, um, but to give us kind of a background into your th- like, what kind of th- things are you reading that are guiding some of these thoughts that you're having? Okay. Well, and Jay, that's one thing that you know when I was younger i hated reading and when i went to a community college i hated reading and for one thing i thought i was a slow reader and it took me forever to read and i'm sure at times my comprehension was horrible um but something clicked and i remember taking a literature class and, and reading shakespeare for i mean shakespeare for all things uh but something just clicked i thought you know this is really enlightening and really opened my eyes and so ever since then i just i, I love reading so some of the books that I've read recently are, are Homo Sapien and Homo Deus by Yuval Harari, uh, Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, uh, Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, and Bandwidth Recovery from Chai uh, Vershilden. Um, and, and these, I guess what I try to do too, uh, Jay, because I, I, when I read these books, I, I try to... I think one thing when you, good leaders, I think, try to read different types of books from different disciplines and then try to make connections with those in terms of the work we do. And so I've used all of those books. I mean, Homo, Homo sapiens is really a history of the United, or of mankind and, uh, Nudge talks about, um, behavioral science. And then Whistling Vivaldi was, I thought was a really, really powerful book for me. And it talked about, um, stereotype threat and then bandwidth recovery talks about vulnerable populations and the concept is using the, the analogy of bandwidth that if you if you think you have this tube uh when you think of the internet right i mean you have this cable and this tube that information is flowing through and for some of us that that tube is wide open because we don't have other things that we worry about or not so much but if you're from a vulnerable population if you're, you know, when you think of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when you have to commit a lot of time and energy and, and psychic resources towards work, towards other things, you have a little room in that tube to continue to learn and commit that time and energy towards other things, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, you know, trying to make connections with these, the, the different books that I read and, and how it may influence what we do. I also finished reading uh, a while back, Making Hope Happen. It's about hope theory hmm. uh, by Shane Lopez. And it, I found it really, really interesting that part of what we should do and try to do, particularly with vulnerable populations, is to get them to future cast, to truly think of the future. Because I looked at myself when I was 18, 19 years old. I was lucky to think about next week, let alone next semester, let alone right. three years, four years down the road. So some of the research suggests then if we can help students future cast to think of the future, that when they have smaller challenges in the moment, they can overcome them more readily because they still have this goal in the future. So those are things I think about, and I think about how we use uh, behavioral science to nudge students to, to behave in appropriate manners, but also give them some freedom. Because some of the research suggests, too, that what we... Jake, we, we think 
that 18, 19 year old kids are going to make rational, logical decisions, right? Right. So, you know, I, I look at myself when I was 18 and 19, I thought, you know, I thought I knew what the heck I was doing. I thought I was rational, but I had no clue. And some of it was because I was first gen. I didn't have parents that could help guide me or have any of those conversations. So really ignorant at the time, but, but didn't even know it. So those are some things that, that I think we should help. And when it comes to some of the behavioral science, here's the things that I see too, Jake, is you know, we bring students to campus and we say, okay, we want you to be involved. And I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. We want you to be involved. And, and I think most of us know logically that's the right thing to do. But then I think, you know, you have this kid who might be an introvert. Do you really think they're going to go out of their way to do that? It doesn't happen. The other part, too, is we'll tell students, okay, here's 300 student organizations. Go find one and get involved. And a lot of the kids that need to don't. But also some of the information that some of the research talks about what's called information overload. So do you really think a student's going to explore 300 student organizations and try to find one? Yeah. Not like, right. But what if, what if we used you know, the Amazon approach? And so those students that come to us and say they're a, a music major before they leave, well, let's say, okay, students who are music majors typically did this group, this group, and this group. And so before you leave, we want you to commit to join one of them. And some of the research uh, on, on behavioral science is to have them read something and sign it. So, so psychologically, they're making a commitment by signing this form. And, and some of the research indicates that you can e- either up to a quarter or not a third more participation, just simply having students read it, simplifying the, the kind of things that they'd be engaged with, and then signing a form saying, I'm making a commitment to do this. So I don't know where they're going to work, but those are things that I think about from my campus in terms of how do we engage students and use theory and some of these other practices that people may not necessarily think are connected, but I think they are. The other part, too, uh, and I'm rambling a little bit here, Jake, so stop me if you... No, please. Uh, But I remember reading Homo Sapien by Yuval Harari, and one of the things that he mentioned in his there is we always compare ourselves with our contemporaries, never with our ancestors. And, and I thought that was really compelling because I look at myself now and I get to do things my parents only dreamed of doing, only dreamed of doing. And if I compared myself with my parents, I would feel pretty dang good about where I'm at. But we always compare ourselves with the Joneses, right? Our contemporaries, which means that we're, we're never ever very happy. Or if we are, it's not for very long. And there's some research, too, on this concept called headwinds, tailwinds asymmetry. I don't know if you've heard of that before. I've not, no. But but it, the concept is uh, headwind, tailwinds asymmetry is the, the analogy of running. So if you're running and you got the wind to your face, you're just thinking, God, this is horrible. I can't wait till I get to turn and have the, the wind is behind me. So guess what? Sooner or later, you're going to make the turn. And you're going to say, wow, that feels good. I'm not into the wind. But after maybe a block or two, you're thinking, this still sucks. I'm still running. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense at all, no, but, yeah. but we very quickly uh, forget the good things and what's going on with us. And so we consequently 
things that were good for a little while, but then we almost automatically say, okay, I don't have this. I want this. Um, I need to have this. Um, so I think about that in terms of how we work with students and how we have those conversations with them that it's okay to want, but, but it's more important what are you going to do to get there and what kind of time and energy do you think you have to, to allow you to try to get this? Because that's part of the human condition, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. So those are just a few books. And again, I, I, I love reading and I love to try to make connections with all these different theories and concepts and how they might apply to what we do in higher ed. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is uh, taking the uh, concept of lifelong learning uh, to a whole new level. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to uh, transition just a little bit into um, – so you've kind of brushed on your journey throughout uh, higher ed. Uh, so I'm going to drill down on some questions, um, and we'll kind of just kind of play it by ear as how you want to go. So uh, you uh, brushed on your uh, time as a, as a vice president in student life, and now uh, you're serving as president of your institution. Uh, so can you talk to me a little bit about the, um, what kind of made you make the switch there? Well, you know, Jake, I think I'd mentioned before about the invite. Uh, I had a number of people years ago uh, plant the seed that, you know, sometimes you need to think about being a president at a community college or a president at some college. Um, and so that was always planted in the back of my mind. So one thing that had happened, uh, Jake, and this goes back to, I really believe that we're more defined by our failures and our successes. So uh, a few years ago when I was working at North Dakota State University, uh, we had some major, major budget challenges. And so consequently what happened is that uh, they actually eliminated the Division of Student Affairs. They eliminated my position and six other jobs within the division, all because of budget reasons. Uh, you know, and those are really, really painful experiences. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes I think, Jake, you know, again, back to my quote from Paulo Coelho that uh, when you want to achieve something, the entire universe conspires in helping you achieve it. Uh, well, I think somebody was telling me that, you know, it was time for me to go do something else and share my talents in a, in a different place. And sometimes, unless we're forced to do that, we get too comfortable in our own lives that we, we don't necessarily aren't willing to take that risk. So I think, again, this was the, the universe saying, you know, you need to go think about why you're here and what you have to share and how you might share that with others. So it really got me thinking. I, I had interviewed for a number of vice president's jobs um, and a handful of president's jobs. And the more I went along, the more I, I, I was really enthralled with the idea of being a president. Because one of the challenges you, you can imagine when you're a vice president is uh, some things you don't have a lot of control over. Um, something, okay, no, being president, although you still have to report to a, a board or, or another system, at least you have control of what's going on in your campus. And some of the things that I always wanted to do and thought we could do, uh, now I think we have the ability to try those. And part of my philosophy is I want to get caught trying. I I don't want to say, what are we going to do this year and have the same conversation next year. I'd rather do something and say, well, either that failed or it worked, and what are we going to do next, rather than just sitting here and, and saying, how are we going to make, um, 
this campus the best rural community college in the state. Um, so again, I, as I was looking at it, I thought, okay, what kind of college do you want to be at? So I looked back at my experience when I was at Western, and it was a rural community college that had athletics. Um, it had uh, on-site campus housing, uh, kind of a mini university in my mind. And those are the kind of things I was looking at. It is also, this campus is an HSI. It's a Hispanic serving institution. Um, so those are the things I was looking for. A diverse campus that had athletics, that was comprehensive, that had housing, that was rural, uh, that had a lot of first-gen and low-income students that I could at least have a perspective with and see if we could make a difference here. And so this fits virtually every one of those categories. Uh, so I, it, it's a blast on a daily basis. I'm thinking, gosh, I'm kind of impatient. I want to get some things done. Uh, but that's why I come to work every day thinking, gosh, we, we have a lot of opportunities here. Yeah, that's great. So uh, you mentioned that the kind of the invite is the way that you uh, started thinking about this. Uh, is that uh, sort of the same thing that uh, got you into the field in the first place? Well, you know, I, I think I mentioned before that I was, uh, I have, well, I didn't mention, but I have four older brothers uh, and a younger sister. And my, I have two older brothers who are math teachers. And, and here's what the research tells us too, Jake. On, when we go about finding our vocation, all the research tells us it's usually because you interact with somebody, you know somebody, maybe you read about something or you saw something on TV. Maybe you had some interaction because of a medical issue where you saw a physical therapist and said, ah, that'd be, that sounds like a cool occupation. So then, uh, and if you remember that 60% of us find our jobs because of our career or because of our networks. So then I, I look back and thought, you know, when I was 18 or 19, uh, I didn't know a doctor. I didn't know an attorney. I didn't know a physical therapist. I can tell you, I cert certainly didn't know a, a president at a community college. So how do I even know that those are even options? How do I even know that what it takes to be one of those people? And so I, I think that's always been my job to have students explore and to take advantage of what there's a theory called happenstance. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it's, it's how we go about finding our, our vocation. And some of it means taking advantage of unplanned opportunities. So I always thought I wanted to be a teacher, but honestly, Jake, I wasn't smart enough to teach any subject matter or something. I want to be involved in education, but how do I do that and not be in the classroom? So I, I remember a particular uh, person that was working with me when I was in Omaha, Nebraska, working at a grocery store, a young man who had quit school. Uh, and so I was having conversation with him about going back to get his GED. And consequently, he did finally go back, and we had a number of conversations about why he went back. And that was one of those, you know, I think we always have those critical moments. That was one of those aha that said, wow, this felt really, really good helping somebody do this. So that got me thinking, okay, how do I, there's got to be other ways to be involved in education to help people but not be in the classroom. So then I had the opportunity to go to Eastern Wyoming Community College as a vocational evaluator and got to start my journey in higher ed. Uh, but I also have to say, Jake, that um, I would never change anything about my life. As much as I look back at those 12 years working retail, uh, 
I have a great appreciation and a great gratitude for the work we get to do on a daily basis. So if I ever think I'm having a bad day, I think, you know, I could be back doing that kind of work that wasn't very fulfilling to me, might be to others. Uh, so I drive people crazy. My, my philosophy on a daily basis is all my days are good and some of them are better than others. And, and that's my approach on a daily basis. And the other thing that I found out, Jake, about people in relation to being a leader, people want to follow people who have a vision. People want to follow those who will validate you and believe in you. People will follow you if you will give them opportunities to, to, to fail, to try things and fail. But they also want somebody who's positive. I don't know about you, but I hate being around negative people. And so remember, I'm getting to be an old guy, but, but over a really long period of time, I've realized that those are the things that people will follow. And I think they want, in my mind, being humble and having some humility will, will draw people to you, but doing it in a manner that is genuine. And because if you're a phony about it and you're trying to be something you're not, people pick up on it really, really quick. Um, but I remember Daniel Pink's book, Drive. He mentions three things that people want from a job. And I really think it's that simple. They want to believe that what they do is, is contributing and that they get some validation that what they do matters and that they have some freedom over their job. So those are things that I think about and, and ask our campus. So how are we giving people freedom to do their job? And are we validating women when they do good work and when they fail? We have to celebrate successes and failures in my mind. Um, and how do we make sure that they understand that they're contributing to something that's bigger than them whether you're a custodian or whether you're a dean or a director. So those are all things that I think about. And I'm really rambling, Jake, so I don't know if I, I got to the bottom of your question at all. No, you, uh, it's, uh, you call it rambling, but uh, I am like seriously just in awe of our, just our whole conversation. Uh, and so uh, I, I think you got at it uh, perfectly. Um, and it's actually a pretty good segue into the last direction I want to go for the next few minutes um, in regards to uh, mentorship. Because when Anthony connected us, uh, as I said in my email to you, that uh, you know he references you as one of the best mentors he's had in his life. Uh, and so uh, I want to talk a little bit about the role of mentorship. And uh, sure, in higher ed, uh, we can go specifically, but... Uh, for everybody um, at any, in any industry, uh, we need good mentors. And so uh, why don't we start this by uh, you sharing a little bit about the mentors that have had an impact on you? Yeah. Well, I, thank you, Jake. And I, and I think I mentioned this before when I mentioned about the invite. And I, and I think for all of us, and I'm, if you really think about it, there's always going to be somebody, none of us get to where we're at by ourselves. Um, and if you remember the comment that I made that, you know, if 60% of us find our job because of our careers, um, the thing I think about on, on this campus is how do we give students that network before they graduate from college, particularly those students who come from vulnerable populations? Um, so I have a lot of mentors and a lot of people that I still admire. Um, 
I, I remember uh, Marilyn Cotent at the Eastern Wyoming Community College. That was my first job after I got my bachelor's degree uh, as a vocational evaluator. And, and honestly, Jake, they should have never hired me. I, I had no experience in, in higher ed, but they gave me the opportunity. And, and that's one thing that I, I try to do now is as we're going through the hiring process and the search process is look for the diamonds in the rough. There's always going to some people, be some people that don't maybe fit all the check boxes, but they have some talent and the willingness to learn and they have the character and work ethic. You can train a lot of things, but you can't train work ethic, character, and integrity. Um, so Marilyn Cotent was one that really believed in me and she helped me. Um, and then I had Marty Ramirez. In fact, I just, Marty and I have been emailing the last couple of days, but I invited him to come to EWC to present. And before he left, he invited me. He said, you know, you really need to think about coming to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, so that was the invite again. Uh, and he actually helped me get a job there that I probably should not have got either. Um, but I, I think for m most of us, we've always had that somebody who's been in our corner and has gone to bat for us. Um, and then, I, again, as, as I go through this and the older I get, it's, it's my job to pay it forward now. So that's why... I consider myself in the generative stage of life, Jake, where you're to a point where you can kind of see the end of your career and you think, okay, what's my legacy and what can I do while I'm still here? I think my job is to share my experience and knowledge with others and help them learn from my mistakes, but also challenge that concept of paying it forward. And then I think of Ruth Randall, who was my advisor in my PhD program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She was, the things I remember about her is she was never, ever judgmental. And she just had this way of, that I really wanted to, I wanted to be successful for her. And it wasn't, she never asked me that, but she just, it has to go with how, how you treat people, genuinely treat people and care for them. Um, and so she was one that I never wanted to fail. And I really wanted to succeed to show her that her, time and energy that she gave to me was worth her while. Um, and then Diana Doyle, who was actually president at one of the other system colleges in Colorado, hired me as the vice president at the Western Nebraska Community College. And, and again, probably should have never hired me, uh, but gave me the opportunity. And, and now she is still a mentor and, and, and now a peer and a colleague. So, I mean, I can point to people over and over and over again that have given me their time and energy and nominated me and done all those things that has really made a difference in my life. But conversely then, again, I think of students on my campus who don't have that somebody, that, that one person who's going to believe in them, who's going to challenge them, who's going to believe in them. And that's, that's kind of my mission on this campus is Every student should leave here having somebody, and I don't care whether it's a custodial person or whether it's a dean or a director, somebody on this campus has to have some connection with every student that is, is on this campus. So did I answer that, Jake? Uh, yeah, you did. And I, um, I am trying to think of, you know, what we're – what I am doing for students like that on my campus and uh, the students who – uh, don't, yeah, don't have anybody. The so there's one thing that I do, 
Jake is, in fact, I'm having coffee with the student this afternoon. Um, I just, you know, I, I try to spend time in our learning commons and in our cafeteria and get to know a few students. And then if I know it's their birthday or if I know there's, if I get a sense that they're struggling, I'll just invite them to coffee. And I'll just start having conversations with them. And I use all, some of the theories that I mentioned before. I use happenstance. I use hope theory. Um, I, I use a lot of these theories and embed them in my conversations with students. Um, and I find them one of the key things that, that matters is visit with them, you believe in them. And there's times where I'll come back to my office then and I'll post something on social media or I'll follow up with an email, just validating, saying, thanks for sharing. That took a lot of courage. I'm proud of you. Um, keep plugging away. Let me know what I can do to help you. And it is so amazing how those, that simple validation, students will respond and say, thank you. Nobody's ever done that for me before. And the challenge is, can one person do that with a campus of 1,200 students or 5,000 students or whatever it may be? Well, I think our job is to continue to get our staff to do those kind of things. And then when I visit with students, I try to encourage them to say, you know, now that you know more about what's going around campus, your job is to help students too. And so if you see students that you know are struggling or experience some of the things that you've done, spend time with them to, to invite them, uh, to have conversations with them. And if you think it's beyond where you're at, then refer them to professional staff. But in my mind, that's how you scale this, this sense of engagement and connection is starting with one person at a time and continuing to make sure that they understand why we're here and to share that message because students are really powerful. I think we underestimate uh, what they can do and how much they can contribute if they know that they can. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, on the on the flip side of this too, I think that uh, one of the things that is really has been really important for me is uh, naming my mentors and doing um, doing all that I can to let people know that. Um, we have to like thank the people who are in that, who, who we have identified as people being in our corner, uh, and things like that. Because what just like a, if people go their whole life not knowing the impact you have on somebody, you know, uh, even if it's just the simple like person, like that student to you saying thank you or, uh, you know, something happening, some sort of recognition. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I think that that is important also. Yeah, Jake, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that's one thing that, um, I'm not sure as staff, we really tell students that what they, what they've done for us matters. And so I, I have conversations with all the time with students and when they, I, I will tell them, um, in fact, it was, uh, Misty the other day and I was telling her, you know, Misty, thanks. Thanks for taking the time an interest in inviting me to have this conversation because whether you know it or not, you validated me. And and when students give you thank you cards, um, I'll tell them that whether you know it or not, you validated me. And and those, you know, when you get those, you get endorphins, right? And you get this good feeling. And what that does is say, you know, that felt good. I want to do it again. So in order to get that repeat behavior, it, it always has to do with feedback, right? When you when you get positive feedback. 
So those are the things that I don't think as staff we typically do and to remind and tell students that you know, thank you for the, the thank you card because you validated me. And then I think my challenge is always with them to say, you know, who's your favorite faculty member? Who's your other staff member? And do they know that you really appreciate them? Because oftentimes as, as staff and faculty, sometimes you never know whether you're making a difference. But if a student drops you a note or, or asks you to go to have a cup of coffee, those are the things that say, you know what, something I did must have worked. Without any getting any kind of feedback, sometimes you never, ever know. But I think being intentional and as a staff member, having a little vulnerability and saying, you know, thanks for coming in to visit with me because this is the kind of work that I love doing. And by you coming in, you validated me and said that something I did worked. And I'm going to continue to do it because evidently it made a little bit of a difference for you. So I don't know if that makes sense at all. No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. Well, uh, Tim, I think I've taken uh, enough of your time. Uh, so uh, unless there's anything else uh, you want to share before we uh, end the call, I think that. Uh... Yeah, well, Jake, th thanks again for the opportunity. Again, I hope hope you get the sense that, you know, I, I love what I do. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's, it's an honor or privilege on a daily basis to do what we do. Uh, and, and I'm not done yet. We still have some work to do here. And, uh, I'm certainly not perfect. I'm a work in progress, but um, I appreciate the opportunity to participate. And other questions come up, or if there's anything I can help you with, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Tim, thanks again so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that you can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow my speaking and coaching business by visiting my website at www.jakespeaks.org. Or you can just follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram at MC Leadership Guy. Until next time, take care.